Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Great to see all of you here. Uh, John, I too am afraid of Krista Coe, so I'm with you there. I'm just afraid of how happy Krista is all the time. You can't trust people that are that happy, I don't think. Uh, John, is, is today, what's a uh, random holiday for today? Did you look that up? Okay, well, it's Krista Co Day is what it is, I guess. <laughs> all right, thanks, John. Good to see all of you guys here this morning. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you for joining us online. Uh, I am apparently at the age where I get injuries now when I sleep, and so that's why I'm on a stool here this morning. I woke up with some kind of a pain in my foot. I have no idea what it is. Um, but I'm apparently at that age now, and I think for many of you, you're probably looking at me saying, this is just the beginning, buddy. It's all downhill from here. So I'm not going to complain about it too much, uh, but just to let you know, that's where I'm at here this morning. The good news is, though, it is the softball off season, so I'm not going to miss any softball games because of this. And so it's good that I have my priorities straight this morning as we get uh, started into uh, the book of Ephesians. But we're going to continue into Ephesians this morning as we are in our series that's called Being the Church. We're going to be talking, continuing to talk about how it is that Paul presents to us from the book of Ephesians, this wonderful document about what the church looks like, uh, this letter that has been revered for 2,000 years, and us looking at what it means for us uh, to be the church together. You know, a few years ago, Swedish consultant Maria Steinwankel asked an interesting question to 65 people from all over the world. And she asked this question that, uh, she asked a question ultimately uh, that uh, is one that maybe some of us think about from time to time. And the question was this, what is the greatest fear in your life? What do, what do you fear the most out of anything else in this world? And the most frequent answer was one that surprised her and probably one that might surprise you as well. The answer was related to some aspect, or the, the most frequent answer given to that question was related to some aspect of purpose or meaning. Danielle from Sacramento, California, who was one of the respondents, said this, My greatest fear would be missing out on my purpose here on earth. I know I have a purpose that I am not yet serving. Anthony from New York City said, My biggest fear is never taking a risk in an effort to find my true calling. And Rebecca from Germany said, My greatest fear is to go through, the, through life living small, but not realizing it until it's too late. Another recent survey consisting of 2,000 people from the millennial generation, which is basically, I think the first, I think the oldest millennials are now 40 years old, if you can believe that. I think, so like somewhere between 25 and 40 years old, that, that generation. What they found is that as a survey of 20,000 millennials, they found that 80% believe that they are not good enough in virtually all areas of their lives. Due to the pressure that they feel to succeed in their careers, to find a meaningful romantic relationship, to meet others' expectations, and of all things, to maintain a presence on social media. 80% said that they felt this pressure to such a degree that it's affected their mental health in a negative way. Millennials have also been identified as the most restless generation in American history, with some 60% living in a town or a city that is not the hometown that they grew up in and about 80% having moved at least, at least once since they got out of college. And although, of course, this could be explained by natural phenomenon, like getting a, like a career change or family situations, most of the millennials who are moving all over the place are moving, in many cases, just to get a fresh start, thinking that a change in life will bring more of a sense of freedom and more of a sense of meaning to their lives. As one person said who had moved several times, she said, each new move and new beginning meant new people, new jobs, and new situations, 
which had to be started from scratch each time. It was supposed to feel like freedom. Instead, all the newness, all the time, felt eerily like being lost. Now, whether it's expressed as a sense of purpose or meaning, being successful in life, finding relationships, seeking freedom, what I think all of these impulses have in common at their core is this issue of identity. The question of who we are and who we should be. As we continue into Ephesians today, we're going to be looking at the second part of chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 in just a minute. But we're going to hit on one of these big themes that is a theme in the book of Ephesians. It's also a big theme in all of Scripture, this issue of identity. Who are we and who are we supposed to be? And I don't know if you've noticed this before, but the Bible does hit on this theme a lot in terms of how significant it is, in terms of how significant our sense of identity is as human beings. And there's good reason for that. As human beings, we were designed by creatures who needed to have some kind of identity that was put into us. That's how God created us. And so for those of us who have trouble finding identity, for those of us who have trouble resting in a sense of true identity, we can be restless and unsettled. In fact, in a lot of ways, we'll grab for anything that will give us identity if we don't feel like we have one already. For some people, identity is outside of themselves. It could be career, could be a relationship, like a marriage or some other romantic relationship. It could be a parent-child relationship. It could be a social status. It could be politics or geographic uh, qualifications, where someone lives or where they're from. All of these things can be things that give people identity. For some people, identity comes more from inside themselves. It might be gender, or sexual orientation, or race, or talents, or skills, or their own bodies. And it's maybe no surprise that no matter where you look, identity is one of the biggest issues that's facing our culture right now. We even see this in the often discussed tribalization of our culture that's happening all over the place. And it comes back to this issue of identity. Because tribes are formed by people who share the same kind of identity, and it's no longer just like you can disagree on an issue or you can do something different. It's what I, what I believe and what I do are now who I am, and that becomes the tribe of the people that I tend to gravitate towards. And so people will tribalize by socioeconomic status, politics, sexual orientation, all kinds of things. And it's gotten to the point, if you think something or do something different, it's not just that you think something or do something, that you are different. Your identity is different than someone else who thinks or does something differently. I think because we see these issues of identity everywhere, uh, we hear things all the time like this is how someone identifies, and it relates to a whole bunch of different things. It can be easy for us to get frustrated. It can be easy for us to get a little bit upset because of the confusion of it all. But I think, I think what we need to remember is that God has created in us a need to rest in an identity. And no matter who we are, as human beings created in God's image, that's who we have being, been created to become and to be. I think it's inseparable from, being, from us as human beings. When God says in Genesis, let us create man in our image, this is a statement of identity as much as it is anything. It is God saying this creature will bear the identifying mark of the image of God, the one who has created him, in him. And when that identity is broken, like it was in the fall, like it was because of sin, and like it is in broken humanity, you have people, really all people in all our own ways, who are struggling for identity in this world. And it's a frightening thing when you don't have a core sense of identity. Because we could argue, I think, that the need for identity is just as basic as the need that we have for water, or even the need that we have for oxygen. We need it to survive 
and it causes us to make sense out of the world. So getting upset, really, or judgmental about someone's chosen identity is like getting upset with someone who is thirsty and they don't have clean drinking water available so they're drinking from a dirty creek somewhere. It's not the healthiest thing and the source, of course, of the drinking water is the wrong place. And if that person drinks that water for long enough from the creek, it'll make them sick and it'll even kill them. But in the end, drinking from a polluted source is often what people do when they can't find the identity that truly satisfies. And people have been doing this since the beginning. They've been doing this since the fall. So as we turn back to Ephesians this morning, what we're going to see is that what we are being led back to is this idea of what it means to be in Christ. That the identity that we are all seeking, whether we realize it or not, is an identity that reunites us to the one who has made us and the one who we know in the flesh as Jesus Christ. And all the amazing blessings that we saw in the first half of Ephesians chapter 1 that we talked about last week is where we find this solution uh, to true identity in Christ. That these blessings that are given to us, including all that we have, that we need, salvation, reconciliation, forgiveness, all those things that we feel that we need, including identity, are all things that are given to us, not as depersonalized blessings that God just kind of showers down on us, but they're given to us one and the same with Jesus. That in Christ, this is also what we receive. And so when you are in Christ, all these things are yours, and you don't have to do anything to get them because it's the nature of what it means to be in Christ, in fellowship and communion with him. And they can't be taken away because they are Jesus's that he gives to us as we share his life. Today we're going to see how these blessings then apply to our lives. If part one, we talked about last week how uh, part one of Ephesians chapter one makes up uh, a piece of a prayer, and then part two is what we're going to look at today is the other half of the prayer. Part one of the prayer is basically the the blessing prayer or the praise prayer. This is where Paul says, look at all that God has done in Christ, in Christ, over and over and over again. As we get to chapter, or verse 15 in chapter one today, what we're going to see is basically how Paul switches gears in his prayer a little bit to become more like an intercessory prayer. What he's doing is he's praying for the Ephesians. He's asking that they would understand and that they would come to know what it means to rest in the identity of Jesus. If you want to put it this way, part one is essentially the gospel, the core of the gospel, what it means to be a Christian, which is what it means to be in Christ. And part two, what we're going to read today, are the implications of the gospel, the application and how that affects our lives even today. And as we look at this, what we see is that in Christ we are called to live into the life of Christ. The life that he has won for us on our behalf. Paul is telling them now, live into your new identity. Your identity is in Christ, now live into this. And when you do, when we do as Christians, we'll find that everything changes. That there is power in identity, there is power in the blessings, but most importantly, there is power in being in Christ. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 23. And this is what Paul says to the Ephesians. For, for this reason, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there is a lot, this, this chapter, I don't know if you've noticed this as we've gone through this, this chapter, the first chapter of Ephesians, is one of the thickest places in all of the New Testament as far as uh, the theology that comes out of this, the celebrate, celebratory nature, and then just the, the potential for life change that comes out of this if we really, really take this to a place of understanding. And the, well, this section starts off with, for this reason, which points us back again and connects us to what Paul has said in the previous section, the first part of this prayer, the section that again praises God for all that he has done and then draws us back to our identity in Christ. So it's Paul praising in the first section, and then what he says here, most notably, the thing that he is praying for for the Ephesians is that they would know then, in verse 18, that you would know the hope to which he has called you and all the rest, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. So he defines these things, like that you would know what this looks like and how this affects your life. Now, I think reading through this first chapter should convince us either that Paul is just really given to a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration, or that what he's describing here in these huge, emphatic terms is nothing less than the, the profound nature of what happens when we come to Christ. And we say a lot that this changes everything. Well, in reality, when you look at this, you begin to see how something deep and fundamental happens. That in Christ, we are someone who we, were, who we were not before. Not just that we do things differently than we did before we knew Jesus. Not just that we believe things that are different than what we did before we came to Jesus. As important as those things are, what is at the core of this is that we are not who we were before. We are someone who is completely different in Christ. This changes the deepest level of our sense of identity. And I think it's important that we really grasp these grandiose words that Paul is writing. I say that because one of the greatest barriers to grasping and knowing all that Paul is talking about here is that we often have a tendency to settle. We have a tendency to settle for so much less than we actually have in Christ. I mean, the mystery of Christ being in us, as Paul's talking about here in chapter 1, is what he is describing. And he's saying it is the Spirit of God who reveals this to us and who gives us wisdom into understanding the depths of what this means. And it starts with realizing how completely we as Christians have a new identity. At least Fitzpatrick puts it this way. The surprising reality is that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity. They're called Christians because they've taken on the identity of someone else, the Christ. Not only have you been given an identity that you weren't born with, or that you didn't earn the right to use, but you're invited to use all the benefits this identity brings. And of course, the benefits that this identity brings is all that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul says that the understanding of this surprising reality, as, as Elise puts it, of a new identity happens through God giving us what he calls, what Paul calls here the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The very Spirit of God in us. The very person of God by His Spirit in us. That's the mystery of the reality of what this looks like. 
And Paul prays that this would be, that we would be enlightened to this understanding. It's almost kind of the wording like that the light would go on about what this really means for us who are in Christ. I think Paul's purpose in all this, of course, is that we would truly know these things. And he lists at least four things right there. I just read them from verses 18 to 19 that we would know specifically. And I want to dive into each one of those because I think each one of those speak to this aspect of the importance of identity in Christ. First of all, he says, the hope to which he has called you. You know, the calling of God in our lives is meant to describe, as we read through this, is meant to fill us with a sense of meaning and purpose. It describes the reality of us living life through the life of Jesus. The one who lived in this world with more meaning and more purpose than any human being who ever lived, and the one who continues to live by his spirit in us as Christ followers, calling us out into the world to live in the same way that he did. And even beyond all of the mission that God calls us to, as important as those things are, as important as it is to live out this redemptive plan that impacts eternity, which could be the most meaningful and significant life that we could think to live, even beyond that, it's that in Christ, we have this identity that gives us meaning and purpose. So we don't need to worry that we didn't accomplish enough in this life because our identity is not tied to production and how much we produce in work or in other things. We don't have to worry about whether or not we had enough experiences because our identity is not tied to our bucket list and whether or not we accomplish that. We don't have to worry about our social media presence if that's a temptation for you, and whether or not it was effective enough. We don't even need to worry about whether or not we made a good enough impact in the world because the purpose of our identity is not tied to any of those things. We have an identity that we find in living a life of worship with Jesus as we live the life of Christ in this world to his glory. Secondly, the riches of his or Jesus' glorious inheritance. Now, this phrase is one of those grandiose phrases that Paul uses in this chapter that's virtually impossible to define because what he describes here is something way too wonderful for us to even fully understand. The inheritance describes everything that we see in the first part of the chapter, right? All these spiritual blessings that, that Paul says are ours in the heavenly places. But, it, but even more than that, what it says, what it, what it describes is everything that Jesus has as the Son who inherits everything from the Father, is ours in Christ. When we're in Christ, Jesus doesn't hold anything back from us. He gives us everything, and it's ours for eternity in Him. We are told about what some of those things are in Scripture, specifically. Eternal life, a new heaven and new earth, reconciliation with God. But at the same time, Jesus describes it as more of a metaphor. He says to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Or I go to prepare, or in my, in my father's house there are many mansions and I go to prepare, prepare a room for you. doesn't literally mean necessarily that, we are, that he's just talking about a mansion. He's talking about a metaphor for what this actually looks like. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. So he's describing something that's familiar to us, opening the door to something that's even more spectacular than what we could imagine, the glorious inheritance of Jesus himself. Now, we have an identity then that not only gives us everything we would ever need, but also everything we would ever want for eternity. And I pulled this phrase out, in the saints. I think this is an important one as he continues. This statement, in the saints, is a statement that's all about relationships. We talked a couple weeks ago about how, how Paul introduces the Ephesians and he says the saints 
who are in Ephesus. We talked about how that word saints means literally holy ones or set apart ones. Ones who are set apart because they are in Christ, because they have a new relationship, a new identity. We are set apart as saints in Christ for relationship with him and for relationship with other saints in the church, in community. So this emphasis is both on, you see the emphasis at the end of this chapter, or the, yeah, the end of this chapter about the body of Christ, how, how, how Jesus has given all of this to his church community. This is exactly what this looks like, to be in his saints. There is a mystery in which we can see that the Spirit helps us to see how it is that we are you're kind of leaning, leaning more into communion with Jesus, leaning more into the life of Jesus as we grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is, as we mature as Christians, those kinds of things. So there's that part of this, but there is also a sense to where we are able to see the mystery of Christ working in other people who are in Christ as well. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but it's one of the greatest joys in my life uh, to be in community with other brothers and sisters and to see Jesus in them and to see them growing more and more into their identity in Christ. It encourages you. You're like, wow, that is an amazing thing. It's this great mystery that Paul talks about. Is a transformation, sanctification, spiritual growth, all that we call those things, is leaning into a deeper understanding of communion in Christ. And then finally, Paul spends the most time in this chapter talking about this statement, the immeasurable greatness of his power. As the power then that he describes that raised Christ from the dead this, of course, is, the, is first the power over life and death, but he doesn't stop there. He says, not only did this power raise Jesus from the grave, but also this power ascended him to the right hand of the Father. So that no matter what power may look like on this earth, Jesus has authority over all of it. No matter who may claim power on this earth, Jesus has authority over all of it. And all the repetition here with power and dominion over and over again, Paul stacks it all on to say, look, whatever power exists whether it's visible, invisible, earthly, spiritual, good, or evil, Jesus is over it all. And this identity is so closely connected to us that in Ephesians 2, verse 6, which we're going to see next week, Paul actually says that we are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Seated with him in the same powerful place that he is in. It's mind-boggling to think about that. Now, what Paul's getting at, of course, in this section is that everything we need in Jesus is available for us. Everything we want is available for us in Christ. Everything our soul cries out for is available for us in Christ. Of course, the problem is, is that we often settle for much less than what Jesus is offering us and what he has won for us on our behalf. You know, I had a pastor who would often say that Scripture, especially the New Testament, a pastor when I was younger, who would say all the time, uh, Scripture, especially the New Testament, is all about becoming who we already are in Christ. So when you read from Paul, like we're reading right now, when you read John's letters, when you read from Peter, all they're doing is really encouraging us to become who we already are in Christ. And when we think again about what it means to grow in maturity in Jesus and sanctification, we have all these markers that we may invent for ourselves. A lot of them are kind of performance markers, right? How much I read my Bible, how much I go to church. Uh, those things are, are important, right? How much am I engaging or maybe even giving or serving or those kinds of things. Those all have their place, certainly. But I think the greatest marker of spiritual growth and sanctification is understanding more deeply who we are in Jesus, becoming more of who we already are in Christ. 
So this question then is what do we do with all this? We have this mystery in Christ in us that's far too wonderful for us to even fully grasp or understand. Um, and, and it starts with, but it does start with this understanding that our identity is in Christ. So how does this work out in our lives? Well, I think if we can get our identity in Christ correct, the rest falls into place. I think when we think about how do we live out all these things that Paul is calling us to live out to, if we look at the way that he lays this chapter out for us, the one thing that he is praying is that we understand that the key to living out this great power and this true freedom that is promised to us in Jesus is that we understand at the core what it means to be people who are in Christ. That that becomes our core identity. And since this is more about Paul just wanting us to wake up, to be enlightened and to wake up to this reality that is already in us as Jesus, as being in Christ, I think in many cases when it comes to identity, we have to look at the things that are actually competitors to that identity. The things that threaten to throw that out of whack, the things that threaten to throw uh, our identity in Jesus into something else. And when it comes to identity, I think there's a simple litmus test of where you are getting your identity from. I think it's how you feel like you want to be known by others is how you believe you are most known. In other words, the way you explain yourself or the way that you present yourself to the world is probably what you understand to be your primary identity. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the way that you introduce yourself. Think about it more as if somebody didn't know you and they sat down with you and had a, had a dinner with you and you just got to know them and they got to know you, at the end of that dinner, who would they say that you believe that you are? Because whether we realize it or not, we lead with the things that we consider to be our primary identity. If it's an idol, if it's a small G God, that God will name us. And that'll be the banner that we carry. And people will see that. And they'll realize it. And it'll be something that'll become obvious. I think today if you look at social media profiles, you can often see who people believe themselves to be, where they're drawing their identity from. In any event, it doesn't take long to see what identity is most important to people. That identity is often the way that we see the world. It's the lens through which we see the world. You may have heard the term worldview before. Worldview is often described as a system and a set of beliefs uh, that we have through which we see the world. I think as we look at our world today, identities actually become stronger than worldview in terms of how we see our world. And you can see this by the way that uh, worldviews are now constructed. Sometimes you'll look at somebody's worldview or your hero worldview and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't hold together really as a consistent set of ideas. Well, that's because identity has come first. Someone has decided this is who I am and I'm going to build a worldview around who I understand myself to be. That's how powerful identity is. It has now become the thing that we see the rest of the world through. In other words, identity has become so powerful and primal for many people that, any identi that identity trumps any kind of worldview. And I think this flip has been happening for a while. We talked about our good buddy Rene Descartes last, last week who said, I think, therefore I am. When you think about that, the, the statement saying, I think, I'm a human being, therefore I am. You may recognize that I am statement as being a divinity type statement in scripture. God comes to Moses and he says, I am is sending you. Jesus says over and over again in the Gospels, I am to identify himself as the self-existent one. And whether Rene Descartes thought he was creating a new deity or thought of himself as God, what he's saying ultimately is, I am self-existent because I can think. That the human mind and what I reason and what I understand is the truest of all true things. When you filter that through then, postmodernism flavor, what you get ultimately 
is where we've arrived. So that truth now comes from inside me instead of truth coming from outside. And that place, wherever it comes from, often decides my identity. And I think defining what's, what's so toxic about this and what's so kind of intoxicating, I should say, about this is that it feels great to define yourself. It feels something like freedom. I mean, what could be better than decide who I am and decide my own destiny? It all sounds so freeing. However, in the Christian worldview, who you are and your own destiny is not compatible with being in Christ. In fact, it often becomes a kind of idolatry, which is why you can look at someone's life and spending enough time with them, you can see where they are drawing their identity from. They will tell you. They will tell you the banner of their God. I think identity that is resting in self-constructed identities of ourselves is, is, a, is a fading and dying and irrelevant kind of identity. It's deceptive in that it feels freeing, but in the end, it is no, there's nothing more oppressive than an identity that is empty at its core. An identity that can't bear the weight of what God put in us in his image. God designed us as people who would find our identity in him and find the fulfillment of everything that our heart aches for eternally in him. An earthly identity does, cannot bear the weight, cannot possibly bear the weight of all the things that God has put in us as identity image bearers of God. Now, I think this is a constant journey and a constant struggle for all of us. I don't mean to say that this identity struggle just exists outside of the church. In fact, in many ways, it's a constant struggle for us if we admit it. Personally, this is a constant struggle for me. I face the temptation all the time to rest my sense of identity in all kinds of things. Some, some of them are really good things. I'll just tell you the good things. I won't tell you the bad things. But being a husband, being a father, being a pastor, it's so easy to just rest my identity and how successful I am in those various things. And although those things are certainly a part of who I am, they are not really my identity. First and foremost, I am a Christian, someone who has taken the identity of Jesus. One of the best well-known stories in the gospel that illustrates this solution of identity in Christ comes from John chapter 4. I want to close with this this morning. This is often what is known as the story uh, between Jesus or the interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. If you know this story, you may know it well. It's a long story, so I won't read the whole thing, but I'll explain it to you. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is walking through an area of Samaria to get back to Galilee during his earthly ministry. And he comes across this small town in the region of Samaria where there's a woman who is drawing water from the well in the middle of the day. She's alone for various reasons. She's been ostracized from her community in some ways because of the life that she's lived to this point. And so she's there by herself drawing water at the well. And Jesus comes up to her and he asks her for a drink of water. And this simple request starts off this discussion that is really a revealer of identity as it plays back and forth between the Samaritan woman and her figuring out the true identity of who Jesus actually is. And you see from her perspective, she defines Jesus in a bunch of different ways. First of all, she notices he's a Jew. Secondly, she notices he's a man. And they begin to talk about the differences between him being a Jew and her being a Samaritan and, 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 and him being a man and her being a woman. And then as Jesus continues to talk, he focuses her attention away from what she can see and really what she can't see. He calls himself living water. She says, and he says, although you may be thirsty, the water that I have will fulfill you and satisfy your soul forever. Because what he saw is that it wasn't just physical thirst that she was dealing with. On a deeper level, her soul was thirsting for something more. 
And as Jesus continues to talk to her, he then points out, these are the things that are indicators of the thirst of your soul. You've been with five men, you've been married to five men, and the man that you live with now, the sixth man in your life, is not even your husband. And she, as an attempt probably to change the subject, or to focus it again on identity, asks this question, well, I can see that you are a prophet because of what you've said. Now, how about this? Can you answer this question for me? And she asks a question about, uh, where's the right place to worship? You Jews say it's in the city of Jerusalem. Or, uh, the Samaritans say it's over here in Samaria. Which is the proper place to worship? Jesus takes her attention from that back to the, cor- back to the issue at hand. This issue of what her soul is really thirsting for. He knows that this woman has bounced from man to man in her life trying to find a relationship where she can find meaning, where she can find an identity. And Jesus sees the thirst for her soul and he knows that this thirst is deeper than she may even realize. So he repeats, I am living water. Whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. If you find your identity in me, stop bouncing back and forth from man to man and experience to experience thinking that that is going to fulfill your soul. Instead, you were created for something much more than that, to find your identity in me. And the whole scene builds to this woman's understanding of the identity of Jesus. First, he's a man, then he's a Jewish man, uh, then he's a prophet, and then finally, she says something to the effect of, well, I'll wait for Messiah to come. He will tell us all the answers. And of course, Jesus standing right in front of her is the Messiah. And as we get to the end of this story, this scene, the way that John presents it to us, the way that the conversation goes, we see more and more of who the identity of Jesus is until that climactic point in verse 26 when he says, I am he. The one who is talking to you is the Messiah you are looking for. And we get to that point where the real identity that matters is not Jew or Samaritan, it's not male or female, it's not prophet or the woman who's drawing water from a well, it is, in the end, the only thing that matters is the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Notice that Jesus doesn't give the Samaritan a better way to live to replace her identity with something else, a religious identity maybe. He doesn't give her something else to do. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't other than kind of mentioning what she is, is dealing with in her relationships, he doesn't condemn her on the spot for these relationships. He calls that out as something that she is evidence of something that she is really thirsting for. And that's why she's so amazed. She goes running back into the town and she says, come see this man who told me everything that I've ever done. Now what, he's say- what she's saying is not that he can tell me the things that I've done in my life, because conceivably probably everybody in that town could have told this woman what she had done in her life. The point that he's getting to is that this is a man who saw behind the things that I was doing to see my heart, to see what my soul is thirsting for. He must be the real Messiah. And the entire time, in the end, this is about the identity that really counts. The identity of the one who is the first fruit of the resurrection. It's about Jesus. It's about who we become as Christians. The only identity that truly matters in the end, at the end of this story, is that Jesus has said, I am he, the Messiah who you are looking for. As Paul presents this in Ephesians chapter 1, he's saying much the same thing. I envision him almost as the woman, the Samaritan woman who is running into the town to say, come and see and hear about this man who has told me everything about what I've done, everything about who I am. And Paul's celebration here in Ephesians chapter 1 calls us back to the only true identity that really matters, the Messiah who is Jesus, the one who 
calls us into union with himself so that it might change not just what we do, not just what we believe, not just who we think we are, but who we actually are at a core level of our identity. And when that happens, when we lean into that, it changes everything for eternity. Let's pray. Well, we are, we are standing here amazed, we're sitting here as it may be, amazed at what you have done. So read through uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Lord, we uh, are encouraged. I pray that we would draw the encouragement from what Paul is celebrating here. And we know, Lord, that you call this a mystery because this is not something that necessarily uh, comes from a human mind. It's not something we could dream up on ourselves. It's something that you have done. It's come from your wisdom. It's come from your mind. It's come from your purpose. It is something that uh, calls out to be revealed in us and revealed to us. And as we've been told here uh, through Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians chapter 1, Lord, uh, it is your Spirit living in us who reveals this to us. And so we ask, Spirit, that you would be the revealer in us. Would you show us even more of what it means to draw closer to our identity in Jesus? We are uh, cognizant of the fact, and we are aware of the fact that it's so easy to place our identity in so many other things. There's a million different ways we can define ourselves according to this world. But there is one way that you have called us to identify ourselves in Christ. And so, Spirit, we would ask that you would continue to show us, reveal those things in our hearts that are so easy to identify ourselves with, that are so easy to get wrapped up in, and show us the surpassing beauty and worth of identity in Jesus. All of these things are true. We, we, we settle for so much less, Lord, than what you want to give us and what you have won for us. So we pray, Spirit, you would enlighten us. We pray, Spirit, that you would give us and draw us into even greater freedom by your work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. We have prayer partners that are available for you after the service. If you would like to uh, have somebody that, to pray with you, somebody to encourage you, somebody that maybe you've got something going on in your life or in a family member's life that you really just need urgent prayer for, they're here right, right here on the right-hand side of me over here, and they're willing to pray with you and looking forward to, uh, to being able to do that with you. Um, we have a big announcement uh, in terms of our, especially this 9 o'clock service. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to do from the beginning of the uh, pandemic and how we respond to it is to follow the guidelines that have been handed down to us, uh, even when those guidelines don't always make the most sense. Um, uh, but you may have seen this past week that the CDC has offered some new guidelines um, for indoor and outdoors regarding masks. And so um, we're going to follow along with that, which essentially means that this will remain a mask mandatory service, except for if you have been fully vaccinated. Um, you're no longer required to wear your mask uh, indoors or outdoors. Certainly you can do it if you choose to. Um, but uh, we're, we're uh, following in line with the CDC and, 
and that's exciting to see that things are progressing that way. And so uh, that will be what, uh, starting next Sunday, that'll be the guidelines for next Sunday for this service. Second service will still remain uh, mask recommended as it's been, um, so that won't change anything there. And so we would say that really while you're in here, we have distancing protocols in place. We are distant in our rows and that kind of thing. Um, we would just encourage you to think about, of course, as you leave this area and move into the lobby, uh, if you can't remain social, socially distant, even if you have been um, immunize, immunized, immunized, I can't even say the word, but even if you've been fully vaccinated, that's easier to say, um, uh, please take care to wear your mask um, in the common areas, okay? All right, so enough about masks. <laughs> uh, great to see all of you here today. Uh, uh, great to worship with you uh, this morning. I pray that as you press further into your identity in Christ, you'd be encouraged as you leave this place and go out this week. We look forward to seeing you next week. Go in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.